0: Good morning, church. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Jonah chapter 2. We'll be reading verse 17 from the previous chapter, but spending most of our time in chapter 2. That's page 774 in the Bibles provided for you in the pew. Jonah chapter 2. Those of you visiting with us, we're studying through these smaller books in the Old Testament called the Minor Prophets. And Jonah uh, is uh, one of those older prophets, one of the earliest written minor prophets. Jonah was called to go to Nineveh, a great city made great by its sin, uh, of Assyria, Israel's enemy, and told to preach there. He was basically told to go left, and he turned right and went as far as he possibly could, away for, tried to go as far as he possibly could, away from the Lord's call. And uh, when we left him last week, he had convinced the sailors that the only way the storm was going to be settled was if they would throw him overboard. We're not entirely sure yet. It'll become clear in chapter 4 just why Jonah felt so strongly that he should not, would not go to Nineveh, but apparently he felt so strongly that he was willing to take his own life rather than obey the Lord. So he said, throw me overboard. And God ruined his plans again. Instead of dying, the Lord sent a great fish to swallow him and save his life. That's where we pick up the story. But the question I want you to think about as we read is this question in your own life. What do you do when you think you're drowning What do you do when you feel like you are drowning in life? It can be any number of reasons, but why not go and ask a man who literally was drowning, what made the difference? What did he do that made a difference? Verse 17, Jonah chapter 1, the Lord appointed, decreed, sent a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of that fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice, for you cast me deep "'into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. "'All your waves and your billows passed over me. "'Then I said, I'm driven away from your sight, "'yet I shall again look upon your holy temple.'" The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. But you brought me up, my life from the pit, brought up my life from the pit. O Lord, my God, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord." And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of our God will stand forever. Open our eyes, O Lord, and our hearts. As we sit among your people in this place and open our eyes and hearts to behold wonderful things from the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the good news that you are with us, that salvation belongs to the Lord, and all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. We pray it in the strong name of Jesus and for his sake. And God's people said together, amen. Do you know the name Dorothy Gale? You might not, but you know her little dog, Toto. And you may remember Miss Gulch, and you may remember that, um, that storm, that, that tornado that hit Kansas and uh, and and scared away toto and she ran after toto to save her from miss gulch and in the process suffered a head injury and it transferred her miraculously into a land of technicolor and a picaresque tale with a yellow brick road and lions and tigers and bears oh yes right But uh, do you remember how it ends? You know, she's clicking her heels together. There's no place like home. There's no place like home. There's no place like home. And then the scene goes from technicolor to sepia. And she's getting her bearings again. She's coming out of of her coma. And she looks around at familiar surroundings. And she's saying all the time, There's no place like home, no place like home. And she sees Auntie M and Uncle Hank, and she sees Hunk and Zeke, Uncle Henry and Hickory. She sees familiar people in a familiar place, and she starts to get her bearings again. Familiar people and familiar places when they are loving and bring back good and redemptive memories are places that reorient us. More recently, scholars are saying they humanize us. It happened in Jonah, in Jonah's life, but we often overread it. We just pass over this, this mention of the temple two times in Jonah that after three days, Jonah turned in his mind's eye to the temple and life became clearer. Hope was restored. And that's exactly what the Lord said the temple was intended to do. He didn't mean that the, that, that building was magical. He was clear about that. But when, when King Solomon was dedicating the temple in 1 Kings chapter 8, He prayed a long prayer of dedication. And he went through numerous scenarios uh, that would characterize uh, the various events of life in Israel. And he said, Lord, when these things happen and your people return physically or turn in their mind's eye to the temple, then hear, heal, restore. When they have sinned, Lord and they turn to your temple, forgive them. When there is drought and famine and death and war, and they turn to your temple, heal them, provide, give them hope, provide mercy. When they are idolatrous and enslaved to their addictions, and they turn to you, heal them and restore their gratitude. God put a place, he put a building in a place on earth, not as his presence, but a, but a catalyst, a sacrament of his presence by which his people who live in a physical world could turn and learn and say, ah, God, no matter what is going on in my life, if I turn back to that Lord represented by that temple, when I return to that people, I know that I am not alone and God is with me. What do you do when you're overwhelmed when you feel like you're drowning I'm going to tell you something that it will it will sound so simplistic it'll almost offend you but in your heart of hearts you know it's right You go to church with God's people You go back to a place where God's People are meeting to worship and you enter those rhythms again and again and again. And those rhythms, as it was true in Jonah, as we'll learn it, those rhythms, the rhythms of this worship service in the people, among the people of God will cut deep grooves in your heart and soul by which your faith will run on rails back to the heart of a redeeming God. Jonah shows us. Jonah shows us that just what Solomon prayed for happened. And by the way, in the New Testament, God has multiplied. There's no longer one temple, but he has multiplied those temples. He has made those temples like embassies to dot uh, the world in the form of churches where the people of God gather. Jonah discovered that God was true to those promises that, that, uh, that Solomon prayed because he in his personal sin turned back to the Lord and was forgiven. In his, in, his being, in his being tossed about by the brokenness of the world, he turned to the Lord and received mercy. In his gross addiction to ingratitude, he turned, the Lord turned him back and saved him look at that first point in regard to personal sin in verses 17 of chapter 1 and verses 1 through 3 of chapter 2. It is God who sent this great storm on the sea. He sent the great storm on the sea to wake up Jonah. He does that in our lives not because he desires to punish us, not because he delights to make us miserable, but there are times when God sends storms in your life. There are times when God drops a boulder on your life, not because he hates you, but because he loves you too much to let you keep going in that delusional way you are, to wake us up. And then it is God who sent this fish, not to punish Jonah like I thought growing up or like I was taught growing up, little boys and girls, you better obey God or God will cause a big fish in the Tennessee River to come and swallow you up. No, God sent this fish to save Jonah, to give him opportunity to three days and three nights to reflect, to turn him back to restoration, to reorient him. Now, what was it going through Jonah's mind? Now, you notice in verse 1 that uh, he is in the belly of the fish three days and three nights, verse 17 and verse 1. He's in the belly of the fish three days and three… It took him three days and three. it took him 3 days and 3 nights to decide to pray. Jonah's a stubborn man as we are. And after three days and three nights in that place, Maybe he's trying to get his orientation. He has vertigo, perhaps, and he's trying to think, where, what is north, south, east, west, where am I? Well, where is the temple from here? The temple. And then he begins to think about what he experienced in the temple time after time after time, that pattern of worship, and it led him to confession of his sin, it led him to redemption, it led him to a reminder of his mission. It led him to, to by, by, by thinking about the temple, he went back to the temple and he thought, now what did we do at the temple? And he remembered as soon as you enter the temple, you, you walk a few places and you start getting splashed by blood because you are reminded that you are sinful, that you're a sinner, and by the time you get to the altar, you and the priest are knee-deep in gore and blood. There is not a shadow of a doubt in either the priest or your mind that you have sinned against a holy God. The blood makes it clear. Jonah's reminded, I'm a sinner. He quotes from 14 different psalms in this short passage. He knows his Bible well because he's sung it. He quotes these hymns. And one of those Psalms he quotes from is Psalm 116, which is very tactile if you read it. It talks about the sacrifices and it it talks about lifting up the cup. It it, it talks about being in the presence of the people, it talks about repeating vows and singing praises. Jonah remembers, There I went, and that I'm I'm a sinner, oh Lord have mercy on him. forgive me of my sin and in remembering that he's remembers that God is redeeming. Just like in this worship service, where you don't get very far into the worship service before, you know, we have this dialogue going on. God calls us to worship. We respond with praise. God calls us to confession of sin. He puts our knees on this hard floor in a humble state, and He calls us, he calls us to confess our sin. And then, we spend, he, then he, he tells us to stand up like we've been unburdened, and to sit down and receive the assurance of pardoning grace, and we give in response to that. And then we hear God giving us instruction, and he sends us out with his blessing. Jonah experienced a similar pattern. He confessed his sin, and he knew that God's forgiveness came as a result of confessing sin. So he quotes not only Psalm 116, but Psalm 86. And in Psalm 86 and Psalm 116, we find the verse that will answer so many of our questions in chapter 4, verse 2. The same verse he quoted from Exodus chapter 34. You are the Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and mercy and forgiving of iniquity, transgression and sin. When he confessed his sins... He remembered that God was merciful and forgiving of every category of sin. And he experienced it in temple worship because for the priest to symbolize that the, that the sacrifice had been accepted and that they were forgiven, he would raise his hands and he would say, may the Lord bless you and keep you, make his face shine upon you. And the people would reach up and say, we receive that. Jonah remembered that he was a sinner He confessed his sin. He remembered that God forgives sin and his redemption all because he's going through those motions that had been cut deeply into his mind in the pattern of worship, and God forgave him. He also remembered the mission to which he was called, and yet he was not quite ready to confess that sin. You see, Jonah is also quoting from passages, like I said, Psalm 86 and 116 and and from Psalm uh, 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 Genesis 12 and and Deuteronomy 2, which describe the nations. Abraham, you're called to take the gospel to the nations. Uh, Israel, you will be a light to the nations. Psalm 86, I'm going to make the church one people from many nations. And Jesus, when he's raised to life, says in Luke 24, I am called, I am raised to life to preach the good news, forgiveness of sins to the nations. Jonah had heard that every week, that God's purpose His redemptive purpose that the primary apologetic for the truth of the redeeming power, the reconciling power of the gospel, the primary apologetic would be making one people out of many nations. To bring out of many nations, many people into one place to be one people. He heard it week after week after week. After week. It was only reiterated in the New Testament. It becomes the primary ethical demand of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation that the many nations must become one, that the diverse peoples must demonstrate the unifying power of the gospel by worshiping together and loving one another as father and mother and sister and, and brother. And every generation has fought it tooth and toenail. Nine of the 13 of Paul's epistles in the New Testament are addressing this sin that is exposed in Jonah where Jonah has heard, yes, the gospel is for the nations. God is going to make one people out of many. Someday that's going to happen or that's for somebody else to talk about. But when it comes to Jonah to say, you're going to go to the Assyrians and you're going to preach to them, and you're going to invite them to my grace. And guess what? When in being invited to, their, to my grace, they're going to show up in your church, Jonah. And you're going to worship as one people. And Jonah says, No, I would rather die. And God said, I'm not going to let you because my mission is going to go forward. Now, what I want you to see is that even though Jonah's confession is incomplete at this point, by his own testimony, going to, in chapter 4, he's going to tell us exactly the depth of the wickedness of his sin. That he had been so convinced, he'd become so convinced that being Jewish was the best thing. He'd become so convinced that he would rather die than disrupt that comfort. But God forgave his his paltry confession of sin in chapter 2, saved him by the fish because he's going to continue his work of salvation. And it all came from Jonah going back to church in his mind's eye and remembering how he worshiped. The next thing I want you to see is that when Jonah was overwhelmed, he was literally drowning. The forces of nature of a broken world were overcoming him and threatening to kill him. Seaweed wrapped around his head, feet entangled, sinking desperately to the bottom of the ocean. When he's overcome by these physical forces of a broken world, He turns in his mind's eye to the temple, back to church and back to worship in a particular place among a group of people. And in that place and among those people, he remembered God is sovereign and king over all the universe. The temple was built in such a way that when you came into it, your eyes were lifted up. You had to look up just like in this place. We don't have eight-foot ceilings you come into this place thanks to our forefathers who built this beautiful building. And no matter what your economic state is, you can join this church free and this becomes yours. And God gives it to you and you walk in here and your eyes are lifted up. And you are reminded God is sovereign, God is king. These, these forces of nature, this illness, this death, this aspect of the fall, this brokenness, this disaster that's beset our country, no matter what it is, we come into this place and He reorients us and He reminds us, I am the King and sovereign over all things. It's the way the church functions in our lives. It is possible, it is, it is true of many of you, you're brought into this church as these babies were this morning. You're baptized in this place, and then you're brought into worship, and you you learn the patterns of worship, and you get involved in in the the meaning of worship, and someday, maybe, you, you get married in this place, and someday, you may bring your baby back to this place, and then someday, and to be baptized, maybe you bring your baby back here to be married, Or maybe you bring your child here to be buried, or your loved one, or you come here for another loved one who dies. And then you come here after 9-11, or after a disaster, or in covid or you come here when you're depressed or you come here when you've been divorced or the, the day your loved one has passed away. You come back to this place and you go through the rhythms again and again and again. And God shows you that no matter what happens in the brokenness of this world, he is here with you. And he is forgiving sin and he is advancing his kingdom and he is causing all things to work together for the good of those who love him and call according to his purpose. And you get the veil pulled back just a little bit into heaven and that eternal kingdom when everything is going to be made right and put back together perfectly. And it's in this place that God sacramentalizes those experiences. It's not a place to neglect stay away from. It's not a place that can be replaced by a television screen, or a computer, or the lake, or a vacation. You need those reps. You need that rhythm. You need those grooves cut deeply in you, that pattern, because the day will come when you need to find it, and it's not clear where it is. You feel like you're drowning. You have vertigo, spiritual vertigo, and you need to remember the Lord met me in that place. We went through the gospel every week, every week. This is true. This is true. That is true. What I'm experiencing is temporary. Environmental scientists or environmental psychologists, psychology is a new new discipline where we are finally uh, coming to grips with this idea that we're not cleanly divided between spiritual things and physical things, but God uses places and spaces to reinforce to us the spiritual, the unseen realities that He is fitting us for. You need to know that he forgives personal sin so you go back to church. And you need to know that he is sovereign and king over all things, even the broken aspects of the world, so you go back to worship and with God's people. And you need to know that God saved you. And if he did then there is no one from whom you should deny the gospel, whom you should deny the gospel to. And there is no reason ever to be ungrateful. At the root of Jonah's problem was his ingratitude. Jonah uh, says in chapter 4, I am greatly displeased. Because I knew that when I went there, you were going to save those people. And they were going to become my brothers and sisters. They were going to come into my temple and worship. I did not want that. What was he saying implicitly? It's because, yes, I am a personal sinner. But if we're grading on a curve, I'm better than those Assyrians. And the way I live, the way I believe, my cultural artifacts are better than those people and they don't deserve it. He lost his gratitude for his salvation. So God had to take him deeper in the discovery of his sin before he could realize the true depth of the mercy and grace of God. And that also happened as he reflected more on temple worship, which took him into that place. And like the, like the psalmist in Psalm 73, the psalmist said in Psalm 73, you know, I started looking at the world, and I became so resentful and so angry. My foot had almost slipped. We don't know exactly what he means by that, but it doesn't sound good. He almost gave up the faith almost became cynical, devolved into bitterness, whatever it was. My foot had almost slipped, but then I saw you in the sanctuary. I went to church. I didn't feel like going to church that day. I was mad at you that day. I was resentful of you that day, but I went to church, and I saw you high and lifted up, and I perceived their end. Those to whom you have not revealed yourself, those who are living in rebellion against you, they were going to be cast away from you forever. And the only reason that I have been made to follow you is you revealed yourself to me. He he didn't go back into the temple and say, oh, now I see. I really am a lot better than they are. He went back into the temple worship he sang the praises of God he saw the the sacrifices he heard the truth preached and he said oh now I realize that I deserve the same damnation that they do and the only reason I'm not experiencing it is you have saved me from it and being among his people he realized he was not alone and by being physically present with God's people, his heart was retuned. Again, we constantly, scientists constantly discover things that are already revealed in Scripture, and one of these is that an ungrateful heart can be tuned to gratefulness by being around grateful people. An unhappy person can be transformed into a happier person by being around happy people. And they think it's it, that the, the, they, can, they can actually map the way your heart beats in a more regular rhythm when you're around other people whose hearts are beating in a more regular rhythm. It makes sense that when we come among God's people and we're all looking to the same one, all remembering that we are equally deserving of damnation, but Jesus Christ has brought salvation to us by dying on the cross and staying three days and three nights in a tomb to bury our sins with him and revealed to us his saving grace. When we're among people like that, we can't help but feel more grateful, be set free from addiction to ingratitude, to have our hope restored. A few years ago, I read from an autobiography by Murdoch MacDonald, Murdoch MacDonald, who was a professor in the 1970s in, in um, Glasgow, but he was a paratrooper in World War II for the Scots, he was a Scottish paratrooper. And uh, one occasion, his, on this occasion, his 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 uh, plane was shot down, and he and his, his fellow soldiers were captured by Germans taken to a concentration camp. And then they, in this concentration camp, were Americans and British, and they were divided by a very high wall in the middle. So these, the, the Germans sent the Scottish chaplain who was on the plane with Murdo McDonald, sent the Scottish chaplain to the Brits, and then he. And they said, you're going to be a chaplain. Murdoch Macdonald. I don't even know if he was a believer at the time, he said, we're, you're going to be the chaplain to the Americans. And every day, because they were chaplains, they were allowed to meet at the high wall and confer and r- relate how their troops were doing. Shortly into that uh, imprisonment, one of the Americans on Murdoch's side had built an AM receiver. Secretly, they were listening every day to reports. And one day, the American related to Murdoch, the chaplain, that uh, that the German high command had surrendered, and that V Day was only a few weeks, maybe months, at the most, but just a short time away. But the German, the German officers in that concentration camp had not heard that news, and Murdo and his and his uh, Scottish compatriot knew that they even they shared news to each other. They couldn't speak in German, actually. Obviously, they couldn't speak in English. They couldn't even speak in French. They had to speak in Gaelic to each other, indigenous Scottish language to each other. And the Germans didn't understand that. And one day, one day, Murdo MacDonald related to the Scottish chaplain. The British, the German high command has surrendered. Victory is only a short pace away. They're related to the respective troops. They all started cheering, and the Germans thought they've lost their minds. These crazy people are going to run us over. Three days later, the German officers heard the news. And on the fourth day, everybody in the camp woke up to see the gates were open. The pantries were open, and they were free. The German officers had fled. Every week, something similar happens here. Every week, Sunday, the Lord's Day, the day on which the Lord was raised from the dead, we meet on the third day of His time in the tomb. We meet together, and we declare by our actions and by our presence and our words the Lord is risen. He is risen indeed. He has the victory. He has the victory over your personal sin. He has the victory over all of the aspects of brokenness in this world. And He is the cure to your ingratitude, which leads to addiction and idolatry. We declare it to one another, and it changes us. And it makes us very dangerous against the devil's kingdom. This is the privilege we have. This is our theology of place. Let us not neglect it, but be good stewards of it, that he might get us home with joy. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, please take these truths, not only that we hear, but we experience, and cut them deeply into us, that we might live obviously different lives as disciples of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray.